Hello and welcome to another episode of Inscribing Inclusion. I'm your host, Jocelyn Armstrong. I am happy to report that I have a guest this episode. You know, it's been a little while since we've had a guest and I'm very excited. As I've told you all many, many times, I know a lot of amazing people who do wonderful things on like an average Tuesday. And today's guest is no exception. I've had the honor and privilege and pleasure and joy of knowing Isetta Thomas for, we won't count years. It's just been a long time. We're both full adults now. We've known each other since we were little college babies. And Isetta is one of the smartest people I know and one of the most passionate people I know. Um, she is an educator and has spent time in classrooms and also now helps adults learn in a couple of different ways and represents the best interest of a, a number of people. So with that being said, welcome to Inscribing Inclusion, Izetta. Hey, hey, I'm so glad you didn't try to count those years because I was like, mm, we pushing some decades now, which I'd love, but also, mm. <laughs> It definitely feels interesting to say decades, right? It feels interesting. Plural. <laughs> yes, plural. But I am so glad that you are here and I appreciate that you said yes to the invitation and the folks who listen to this podcast regularly know that Inscribing Inclusion is primarily about education, right? I want people to learn about people and topics that maybe they don't know a lot about or that they've never even heard of before. And we educate folks from the standpoint of what it means to have an inclusive society. And that's considering things like race, age, mm -hmm. gender and gender identity, education level, socioeconomic status, disability, right? We come through a couple of different lenses when we're trying to get people to learn. And my goal with this is that folks will listen, they will pick up something that they did not know before, and that they'll figure out a way to put it into practice in their daily life. So with that being said, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, Isetta. Oh, well, let's see. Uh, Isetta, Izetta Nicole, Izetta Thomas, Miss Izetta, Pucat, depending on who you're talking to, Zeddy. Um, <laughs> those are just some of the names that I go by. I am a lifelong resident of Columbus, Ohio, born and raised on the east side, southeast side, central east side. If it's east, I've 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 lived there. Um <laughs> I am a proud graduate of East High School, a mighty tiger. Um, I am a Buckeye. I'm a daughter. I am a sister. I am the eldest of eight children. Uh, first gen college attendee and graduate. I am an educator. I am a poet, a speaker, an artist. Uh, that's me. I'm a plant mom. <laughs> And a puff mom too, right? Right. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, got a dog. Got a amazing significant other. Um, let's see. I try to do like the not typical like introductions about myself, but I will say, um, I have been an educator, a licensed educator since two thousand four. 
Um, I'm licensed as an early intervention specialist, which means I can teach uh, grades pre-K to three special education. And I did teach in the classroom for a number of years and then worked in a lot of different uh, other roles in education. So yeah, that's that's a bit about me, I guess. That is awesome. And so Ms. Izetta or Zetty, as I am prone to call her, is definitely somebody who kids trust and admire. Um, they tell her interesting stories. I remember when she was in the classroom and hearing, you know, some of the fun things that kids would say, and it was always <laughs> great. So you've been an educator now going on 20 years, mm -hmm. at least licensed, right? You started before that, I know, because that's just how you are. What led you to education as a career path? Oh my gosh. It's, um, it's a funny story. So it's not, it. You know, some people are like, I've always known I wanted to be a teacher since I was five years old. Um, no, quite the opposite for me, though, but also it came full circle. Like kindergarten was actually not my jam. So how I became a pre-K teacher is hilarious to me because um, I went to kindergarten. It was half day back in the day. And I came home and my mom was like, what did you think? And I was like, I don't like kids. And then, um, <laughs> and then she told me I would be a great teacher. And I was like, no, thank you, mommy. I'm going to be a singer, songwriter, actress, journalist. Um, and then uh, in high school, I was often encouraged um, to think about education. And I still didn't want to do that, although I was all about pumping up uh, my extracurricular activity. So I ended up being the president of the Educators of Tomorrow <laughs> Love it. Uh, group and then got early acceptance into the journalism and communications program at Ohio State. Went sat in a class with a friend of mine, like not even my class yet, just sat in with a friend. Like he was like, come and observe. Let's see. He worked for the Lantern, which is the uh, publication, you know, the news publication of the Ohio State University. And I was like, dog, this is boring. Like I'm not going to make it. And I really did, like, I wanted to be like the Black Christian Amanpour out here, like traveling the world and covering big events and stuff like that. And I was just like, I'm not going to make it. And so my, um, I had an English teacher who had left uh, public school, well, K to 12, and was working at Innerson at the student center at Ohio State. And I went to her like, Miss Brown, I don't know what to do. My five-year plan is out the window. Like literally no appointment. <laughs> Just walked up in her office. She had a whole family in there. <laughs> and she sat me down with a yellow steno pad and was like, make me two lists one of all the things about the world that you are excited about and all the things about the world that you hate. And legit came back to me like three hours later. That's how long I was there. Um, and was like, let me take you out for coffee and let's look at this. And somehow this brilliant woman was like, this all points to education and not just education, 
it points to special education. Have you ever thought about that? Um, I had experience in middle school being like a, a peer buddy um, mm -hmm. with our uh, special ed classes when I was in, in middle school. I, again, I'm the oldest of eight kids and I had several siblings who had difficulty and challenges in school. I had challenges social-wise, like I was not the social butterfly that many people know today. Um, but academics was my jam, right? Like, yeah, give me all the books, give me all the things like that. That was easy peasy for me, but making friends and being social was not. However, my brothers and my sister, like they had all the friends, um, but books were hard, right? And we were treated differently. And that was one of the things on my list. I didn't like how um, I was kind of, for lack of better words, or as my therapist might put it, uh, the golden child, right? Because I got the good grades. I got A's. I got B's. I cried at a B um, <laughs> until college. And, you know, what I wanted was what my siblings had. Like, I wanted friendships. I wanted to be liked. I wanted some form of popularity, like not necessarily to be prom queen, but just to like not be known as the nerd, right? Because back then, 80s and 90s, that wasn't really cool like it is today. Um, and so she she talked to me about exceptionalities. And um, and I was like, I just want, I want people to treat my siblings the way they treat me. And I don't like that they don't. And so we talked about special education. She got me into FEEP, First Education Experience Program. And I did uh, a practicum at, uh, I think it was Alpine Elementary in a um, intermediate special education class. And I fell in love, man. Them kids mm. was the bomb. I was like, oh my gosh, I love this so much. And I never looked back. I went, I got all the permissions to get in all the classes because I was late entry into the program. Then I decided um, early childhood was my jam. One, because I am five foot two, <laughs> five foot three on a good day, on a good hair day. And um, I was like, yeah, the grownups and the the taller folks are not really my jam. <laughs> not like that. Uh, and I also realized about myself that I have more patience for younger folks and it wouldn't be fair for me to work with older individuals and not come with all of the patience and understanding that they needed just because my brain took some time to process that not only is this an adult or a teenager, but someone who thinks differently than I do. With little kids, I have more patience and more of an automatic understanding of that. So that's how I got into early childhood. Yeah, so that's how I ended up in education. Like it's it's funny because I think um, people from the beginning knew that. And as I got to know more people on my father's side of the family, I realized that I come from a long line of educators. So it is also something that is in my blood and I just believe is ancestral. So I had no control over this. Um, it was just me being obedient and following the path that was set before me. And I'm happy for that journey. I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> I love it. I think it's interesting sometimes too, though, that we see things or we decide things for ourselves, but 
life has a way of connecting us to where we're supposed to be. Like your career kind of shows you because of your ancestral lineage, because of your skill set, because of you even at a young age recognizing the way some kids were treated differently than others, right? And how mm-hmm. you were applauded and your, you know, your siblings were not given that same kind of grace or given that same sort of attention because they yeah. didn't get bees and that kind of thing. And so it's interesting that it was in you all the time. Good, it you know, was trying to fight it, but it was there. <laughs> and I, I would like to say that I was um, dually exceptional in some ways, meaning that, like, again, academics were for the most part really easy to me. I did learn some great study habits in high school that benefited me in college because I have folks that recognize like, oh, this is coming easy, but you ain't gonna make it like this your whole life. So let me teach you how to study. But I also had um, some really interesting things about me as a youngster. Um, When I was four, I had my first of what would come to be several bouts of having Bell's palsy. And so that's a partial face paralysis that I am actually dealing with today. But um, so I went to school in elementary school. I remember it came back. And so being a third grader with only half a half functioning face, right, um, was traumatic. And I was treated a lot differently by folks. And then also I had to learn things differently. It affected my speech. It affected how I ate. Um, it affected how I could hear. And that would come back also in middle school, child, mm, 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 mm. that in puberty. And ooh, eh. and then it came back in high school and then most recently as an adult. And so there was that as well, right? And I was always a big girl. <laughs> and um, when I first started elementary school, I went to a predominantly white elementary school on the west side and I'm a whole beautiful dark-skinned black woman and uh that was interesting right and so I uh I think that my existence was just padded with these experiences that helped me to recognize differences in people but also differences in how folks were treated just because of these little simple things. And I was sensitive to that. And I recognized, you know, my privilege as the quote unquote smart events. Um, and so it's like, well, how do I use that to, to be there for kids that don't have this kind of privilege or that kind of thing gets overlooked because of these other exceptionalities? Because there were also times that, I think things about me were overlooked because of this physical thing and this thing and that thing. So, um, and I'm an empath. So, you know, I felt all the feelings <laughs> and yes, still yeah. do. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crucial though. As we talk about creating these inclusive spaces though, not all of us are, are empaths. We have the ability to be empathetic Mm-hmm. But we don't necessarily feel all the feelings with everyone, but I, I understand the learnings and the lessons that we get from people who are empaths, right? It is important for us to be helpful to them to make sure that they are getting what they need while they're feeling everybody else's feelings, but they teach us a lot too, right? And so I think about the time that I've known you 
and the things that I know about you and the things that I continue to learn about you. And I've always felt comfortable in your presence, right? We've always, we just kind of got along easy from the very beginning. I'm still trying to remember exactly. I think we met because I was the RA and what have you. Yes, y'all, I'm a little bit older, but you were always a person that your, your face was smiling, even, you know, when some of the times you were not in a smiling situation, right? You made mm-hmm. other people feel comfortable. And I know that that went a long way in how you were able to impact kids in the classroom, because we're talking about kids who, like you said, were in different types of special needs, had different learning things that they were dealing with, and not everybody always made them feel comfortable. They mm-hmm. were more likely to want to push these kids to the side and overlook them, but you made it safe for them, right? And you made them comfortable and they were able to be whoever they showed up to be in the classroom that day. And that oh. is crucial. That is crucial. And I, I know that because I've experienced it with you, right? Mm-hmm. So thinking about that though, it's funny because I wanted to talk to you, you know, you're not in the classroom anymore. You've had a couple of different career shifts since then. And you're working right now in what I would consider to be a very advocacy focused space. Mm-hmm. And as I think about how, let's talk about how you transitioned from the classroom to advocacy work. I will, I will preface this by saying, clearly you were probably doing advocacy work when you were a small child and we just didn't know to call it that, right? Because you yeah. identified, you know, how you wanted things to be different. And it certainly started to come to the forefront when that time you spent with Ms. Brown and she was saying, here's what you need to think about doing with your life, right? But how did you shift from spending time with the, with the awesome little babies to then spending time in advocacy space, trying to make things still better for the awesome little babies? Oh gosh, that's also, I feel like I always have very long stories. Um, but I also, I guess would add to that. I, I, I do recognize that I am a storyteller. Um, so I, one, as I was being taught and trained to be an educator and specifically in special education, I had a lot of wonderful professors and folks that I um, got to meet who talked a lot about advocacy work in special education and how being a special ed teacher was a very political thing. And it was not for the faint at heart because there were so many laws and things about special education, like learning about IDEA or IDEIA, all the iterations, uh, right? Um, ADA, Americans with Disabilities Acts and things like that. And honestly, and I don't know if I've ever told you this before, there was a time in which I was like really going back and forth on whether I wanted to go right into the classroom after my MED program or go to law school because I was so intrigued by special education law and education policy and stuff like that. But so, so that was in me, right? Like, and that was part of my training. Like I knew that as a special ed teacher, I would always be advocating and be also not just advocating, but becoming an activist for my children. And I think there's a difference between the two. Um, and then again, ancestrally and bloodline, I think it was in me, right? Um, and in high school, we I remember being told that we were going to start wearing not uniforms, but dress code the next year. And we ha- everybody had to wear white tops and black bottoms. And I was like, 
not on my watch. Like that ain't, that ain't it. Like, I don't like this. You're taking away our creativity. And they would be like, well, this is to help with bullying and the kids who can't afford um, name brand clothes won't be bullied as much. And I was like, yo, I'm a kid that can't afford name brand clothes. Um, I also don't have a working washer and dryer all of the time, right? So it's going to go from not having Nike and FUBU labels to not having the whitest shirts or the blackest blacks, right? Um, so what are you saying? And so then I led a, a student-led uh, <laughs> assembly or whatever and had this forum about the dress code and even spoke at a board meeting about it because I was just like this ain't right and y'all ain't even talk to us y'all making all these decisions for the poor kids and you ain't talk to the poor kids like such as me right um so there was that right and then in in college um when school vouchers became a big thing um I remember going with another student group and we traveled to Cleveland to march uh, about vouchers and charter schools, like against them. And I think like Vivica Fox was the speaker and there were like other really big people there. Um, and I think this was like early 2000s, like 2001 or something like that, like before No Child Left Behind, but getting close to that iteration and things. Um, so there's that. And then I, I taught in the classroom and taught special needs preschool for about 10 years. I always knew that I would not be in the classroom my entire career, but I didn't know what the pathways would look like. And I started to count, like literally count my kiddos because at that time, special ed looked a lot different than it does now. There weren't as many inclusion options. And I was like, I only teach like eight to nine kids a year. 10 years, that's only like 90 kids. Like I really need a way to be able to touch more children, to make more, you make a difference in more kids' lives. And after 30 years, like that's still only going to be like maybe 300 kids or something. Like I feel like um, I could be doing more. And so uh, Columbus City Schools has a program called Peer Assistance and Review where um, veteran teachers can become coaches for first-year teachers. And so I just qualified with the number of years for that. And I was like, well, let me, let me apply for this and let me see maybe if I am working with, if I have 10 or 15 teachers that I'm working with and they all have 10 or 15 kids, I am affecting those kids through them. And so now I have a wider footprint, right? Like I'm out here, I'm doing more for more babies. It may not be direct services, but that's okay as long as they get in this work, you know? And so I did that for a year and whew, that was eye-opening. Child, when you go from like, you know, your classroom and your building, and I have worked in a few different buildings, but then like to the whole district, <laughs> I learned so much about so many things. Um, but I also had the opportunity to work with teachers in elementary school and middle school and high school, special education teachers who were focused just on science and math. And I was like, dang, I didn't even know we was out here doing this like this. And it was just a lot for me and it opened up many doors. And 
fast forward, because I, I went into some other positions working directly with kids. I accepted another position where I was working with the kids, sometimes directly, but again, with teachers and families now on social emotional stuff. Um, I hate the title of that position. It was behavior specialist, behavior intervention specialist. Um, but it allowed me to get folks to understand the root cause of behaviors and um, what you think is acting out is communication because all behavior is communication. So let's figure out what baby boy, baby girl, little friend is communicating through throwing a chair, <laughs> right? right? Like, right. It could be, I'm hungry. It could be I didn't sleep in a bed last night. Um, let's try to figure those things out together. And then I did that for a year and boom, 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 pandemic hit, right? So we was all at home. And uh, I have a immunocompromised household. And so when we went from working at home full time to everybody going back into the buildings, I was not in a place health-wise where I could do that. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I was like, well, let me try to figure out some things. So I started a consulting business um, called Joveria Education Consulting, named after my grandmother, whose name was Josephine Varia. And I, I recognize her as one of my first teachers. And I was like, well, this is another way for me to concentrate with adults, right? If we can change adult behaviors and we can change kiddo behaviors and we can talk about things and I can do some of the work that I wasn't able to do in the school district when it came to inclusion, because when I think of inclusion, I thought literally the whole child and our families that are LGBTQ families, um, folks who are being treated differently, kiddos who were five years old and exploring gender in different ways than folks had been used to. And how do you make teachers comfortable with accepting this kiddo? And how do you give them the language to be able to accept the parents that come in the room that are non-binary or trans and things like that? So I wanted to, to be able to help in that way, but I kept getting pushback from like supervisors and things like that. Uh, and so I was like, well, I'll start my own company. And then, you know, if I can never go back to a classroom or anything like that, then I'll have this and I can just try to work really hard at this. And then I was told about a position that was coming up with our union, the Columbus Education Association. And I was encouraged to apply for this new position uh, as an education justice organizer. And I was like, what is that? Uh, and there was a lot of conversation about community organizing and um, helping to build community schools within the district, but working directly with parents and students and community members um, and empowering them and changing the dynamics, shifting the power dynamics in our school district so that the folks who are closest to the classroom become the decision makers and not the, the bottom of the totem pole, the last people to find out things, the folks that are just given direction and expected to, to take it, right? And so I was like, well, yeah, let me apply for that. And I did. And I got it. 
And mm -hmm. so that's what I am doing now. So I am the education justice organizer for CEA. I am also the lead organizer for the Columbus Education Justice Coalition. And our that is our focus to, um, to shift the power dynamics in the city and in the schools so that our parent and student voices and educator voices and other staff. I, I When I say educator, let me also put this out there. I mean, all education professionals. So I don't just mean classroom teachers and I just don't mean coaches, instructional coaches and, and speech therapists and folks like that. I also mean custodians mm -hmm. and bus drivers and secretaries and instructional assistants. So all education professionals um, that our voices are the loudest voices in the room um, that we're not just getting invitations to be at the table, but bump that we build our own table because maybe we need a cafe table and maybe we need a buffet table and right. we build our own chairs because maybe we need a high chair or a low chair or a wider chair. Um, and so that's what I am doing now. And I just, I honestly believe that this was, um, again, a part of the plan and the journey and the path. And I didn't know that this would be like the title of that, but I knew that I was destined to make a bigger impact. Um, and so here I am. <laughs> and that's something to be said too about being open to possibility and opportunity and how important it is that even when we have achieved a certain thing, right? We've marked off a particular goal. We've got a specific set of degrees that there is still more stuff for us to learn mm -hmm. and that we can contribute in different ways, even with the formal education that we have. It doesn't always look the way we think it is from the beginning. Yeah. I want to back up though and kind of tee up our next sort of question. When you became an instructional coach and you were moving around the district and you said you were in different schools and different classrooms with different age groups, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you kind of was like, whoa. Because what I imagine as a person who's not from Columbus, but has spent some time in different places here, particularly in the schools, um, and what I know my my friends' children experiences are, even within the same school district, right? And that's mm -hmm. whether it's Columbus City or it's one of the suburban schools or what have you, uh -huh. there, uh -huh. there are differences in some of these buildings, right? I spoke to someone recently who is a person that I'm on a board with. We're on a board for a school for children with autism together, and he has an adult son. Mm -hmm. who is on the spectrum and they live in one of the more affluent suburbs in mm -hmm. central Ohio and he said to me the and this man is an attorney retired the amount of time that he and his wife had to spend mm -hmm. making sure in this affluent suburban school district that his son had access to the things that he needed because of him being on the autism spectrum and I was I kind of clutched my chest and was like, you mean to tell me? And he goes, no, yeah, this is how we got affiliated with this school that he and I share a board space because he and his wife were fighting mm -hmm. all the time. And I'm like, but they have the resources that he was like, listen, <laughs> these people were not as prepared as they should have been to give my child what he needed. So we had to go back and forth with them. And so again, what, whether it's a, a an urban school district or a suburban school district, we know that there are inequities that rest within these spaces, mm -hmm. right? So I want to ask you as a person who works in the space and who has spent time in the classrooms, what, what does education equity even look like? 
what does that mean? Is it is it a is it a real thing? Is this me being Pollyanna? Like, what is it? It's so much. Like I, mm, when I first started, I thought it was about. Um, I thought it was about what you just described with with your board partner, right? That um, okay, if if baby over here needs glasses and baby over here doesn't, you know, you give the kid that needs glasses glasses, right? And the right prescription, right? Because we can both, you and I both wear glasses, right? But we may not have the same prescription. And so it's not equality where everybody gets the exact same pair of glasses, right? But you get the glasses that you need. And if you don't need glasses, then that's okay too, right? You have what you need to be able to be your most successful self, right? To set you up to succeed. If that means, you know, everybody else is sitting in these kinds of chairs, but you need something squishy in yours. Like you get that because that's going to help you just be you. I at first thought it was those kinds of things. Like I thought very much um, about wheelchairs and door openings and stuff like that, which yes, is also equity. But what I did get to learn about was, like you said, zip codes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how certain schools in our district, because our district is so large and school funding is so janky, <laughs> for lack of better words, um, that you had schools in our district that I thought literally had lived here my whole life. I'm like, I drove past this school before. I thought this was a suburban school district. Nah, it's a Columbus City school. And I'm like, but then this school down here is a Columbus City school and they look completely different. I had a school that I visited where um, this teacher, and imagine being a first year teacher in a middle school and every Wednesday at noon, you had to literally just stop teaching, stop doing anything where anybody had to concentrate because your classroom and your school building was right next to the alarm system. You know, we in the Midwest, mm-hmm. Ohio. So Wednesday at noon, what happens? You got, exactly, right? And and I mean, it was piercing the first time I was there. And I was like, and as a whole grown adult, right? Who can self-regulate. I loved going to that building on Wednesdays at noon. And we were taught, like, don't always show up to the classrooms at the same time, same date. What? But I started making a habit of trying to be there on Wednesdays at noon because I'm like, if I can't tolerate it as an adult, then what are these kids with autism, with um, Down syndrome, with social emotional needs and stuff like that? And this first year, second career teacher, mm. what are they going through? So I'm going to need to tough up and toughen up and get through this so I can figure out ways to help them get through that, right? So that was an equity issue. I feel like that was an equity issue. Um, Race, sexuality, gender, uh, body image and shape and and vastness, all vastness, you know what I mean? All of that stuff plays in roles of equity. And I think at the end of the day, it is, having the things that you need to be your best you. Um, That might look like housing. 
that might look like health and nutrition and that kind of wellness. It might look like social emotional things. It might look like academics. It might look like what kind of building is this and what does this look like? And is it even beautiful? And is it a place that I want to be when I <laughs> think about going to school? So there's so much, like, I don't feel like there is just one way to describe education equity, but I think that that is also the challenge with making sure that we have it because the work is never going to be done because it's, it's too much. It's so much. It, uh, when you're talking about a whole child or whole person, um, you can't only talk about feeding my brain without feeding my belly. You can't talk about feeding my belly without housing me. And again, experience is everything. Uh, we ain't had no money growing up, right? I I kind of remember when I realized that we were a uh, pope. <laughs> for a long time I didn't know right um but then when I knew I knew and I know what it's like to come home and the lights are not on and to not know if the lights were going to be on when I came home uh or choosing between lights and gas um I've boiled water on the stove to be able to pour a bath for my brothers and then boil some more so I can wash up you know, in the middle of the kitchen, right? Things like that. I know what it's like to eat and watch my mother not eat mm -hmm. and what that felt like for me and how it affected me with going to school. I remember getting my first job as an 18-year-old uh, at, um, well, I think I can say it, Alliance Data Systems. And I made $7.30 an hour. And my mother was uh, working at Popeye's and she made $6.10. Wow. And I felt horrible because I made more money than my mom. Mm. And uh, so I was like, well, let me get one of these bills, right? Mm -hmm. And I paid a bill. I paid like a, a and not like a, I paid a bill bill, mm -hmm. like an electric bill. And I remember going to college and working so many jobs that my aunt sat me down and was like, you're going to have to let some of these go. But I was sending money home, right? I wasn't the kid that freshman year in college when everybody was getting these snack packs and stuff during like the weeks that they encouraged parents to do that. No, I was sending stuff home, right? Um, equity. That also, that also has to do with equity because I, I should not have survived my first year in college. I probably should not have graduated from high school, some of the things that we went through. And all of that affects you and affects your whole you. And so how can you show up for class? How how can I prioritize this class when my brother needs diapers? Mm -hmm. You know, and my mom just lost her job because she um, had to call off to go to an IEP meeting. And, and her boss was like, I don't care what it is, you need to come in here. And so she literally had to choose. And this time she chose school because last time when she didn't, the school was knocking on our door saying, how dare you not come to this? But she was just trying to get food on the table, right? So that, yeah, I, I can't, that, that's how I would describe equity <laughs> in well, and education. <laughs> well, and it's interesting too, because we sometimes have people in places who one, 
they don't share a lived experience like yours, right? They don't have a younger sibling who had an IEP in school. They don't have a mother who was making ends meet the best way that she could in a job that was only paying her $6 an hour, right? And this is, mind you, when we think about people sending money home, we're thinking about someone who has immigrated here to the United States from another country and they're mm -hmm. sending money back. No, no, this is happening within the confines of even the state where we live. Right, right. three miles away, five miles away. <laughs> but we have we have some people that work in education spaces and I'm not saying that they necessarily need to have that lived experience, mm -hmm. but they need to learn about it and understand what it means. So yes, when that child comes to school because they are hungry or because the lights are off or insert the gas is off whatever it is they have the tendency some people to immediately say this child is a behavior problem yeah or yep. this child is giving me trouble and they have to get out of my classroom and they don't think I wonder what's happening at that house is there a resource that we have available as a school system or some other community organization that can help so that when this kid comes to me I can help them learn right what can we do to make sure that they eat or that they have clean clothes or whatever. So at least when they get here in this time, they can learn. You know, I think one of the biggest things um, that in some ways it, it, it costs some money to do, but also mostly is free, is listen. <laughs> Grownups don't listen to kids. Folks in certain positions, uh, don't listen to people in positions that are deemed lower. Mm -hmm. And um, that sets us all up to fail because, and I thought of this a lot when we were beginning and organizing the Columbus Education Justice Coalition. It's like, okay, we know who we are and what we want to do, but we also can't just like jump out here on Main Street and be like, we here and this is what we doing and this is who we working for and this is what, you know, people need. And the people like, who you? <laughs> Which, well, like, how do you know I, what I need if you haven't asked? Right, I yeah. say that. And so, and so our whole first year as a coalition, we did a listening campaign called Our City, Our Schools. Mm -hmm. And we held listening sessions across the city to learn what folks' priorities were but not just like these listening sessions that we would host and invite people to come. We have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and ask them to host them. Host, do it with your family. Here are the three open-ended questions. Um, do it with your friends. Jump on Zoom. Talk about it at the bus stop, right? So that again, it's more authentic and it comes from people and trusted people, trusted community members. I may be a trusted individual in my circle, but I ain't in everybody's circle. And so it, it's not always me. And um, when we, in education as teachers, as administrators, as leaders, sometimes we don't like to admit it, but you can get real egotistical and believe that because you've had all of the um, classical training in education that you know what's best and or you're the best messenger or you're the best listener and that ain't it. And so I think one of the biggest things is to listen and to show up, right? Um, when I think of the educators who made the biggest impacts in my life and it had nothing to do with academics, they literally listened and showed up 
um, when I had Bell's palsy again in high school, I had already told my mom like, yo, this come back. I'm not going to school because that was all very hard and painful and stuff. And if it happens in high school, bruh, count me out. And so um, it is, it comes on, it's triggered by stress. And so I lived in an intergenerational home with uh, great grandparents and grandparents and uncles and aunts and then all of us. And we lost our matriarch. My great grandmother passed away and um, the stress triggered my Bell's palsy. And so by spring, this had came up again and it happened over spring break. And so when it went, when it was time to go back to school, I just didn't get out the bed again. The kid that left school was always there. Maybe not always on time, but always there, right? Um, I just didn't get out the bed. And my mom was like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna let you take this mental health day. She didn't call it that, but it was like, I'm gonna let you have this day. Then the next day I can get out the bed. And then the next day I didn't get out the bed. And I was also the kid that like did not say no to adults. So they are literally telling me what to do and I am defying them. And so by like the third or fourth day of that week, I had a knock on my bedroom door and it was my principal. Mm. Child on the bedroom door. That that's that's an invasion of intimate space, yes. And he said. <laughs> I brought you breakfast. I'll be downstairs when you're ready. And I went downstairs and he had brought McDonald's. Mm. And I was like, what you doing here? <laughs> and, uh, you know, he talked to me about how I was feeling, why I wasn't showing up in school, that my mother had called a couple times. And he was like, this don't sound right. So what's going on? So he just wanted to come and see how I was doing. And I told him, you know, how I felt and all of that. And he was like, all right, well, I'm gonna give you a few minutes to get yourself together and I'll be waiting in the car so I can take you. Take me where, sir? Take me to school. I, I'm not going. I'm not, no. I got in his car and when we got to school and went to his office, he had set up a little desk in his office for me so that I had a place to come and to be when I wasn't ready to be in class or it got to be too much. He had friends of mine who were there to greet me with like flowers and stuff. And they like, we'll sit with you at lunch. Like nobody got to see how it looked for you to eat, but you can't not eat. You have to be here. That's what I mean. He listened. It, I didn't get counted out I wasn't looked at as a kid who was like dropping out, like, oh gosh, another one that was amazing. And now she's like lost to the streets or whatever. He came to my house, mm. brought me food. You know what I'm saying? McDonald's breakfast back in the day. That was the breakfast. Um, <laughs> that is big stuff. And, that is big stuff. And brought enough for the rest of my family too. Mm. Like everybody got an Egg McMuffin that day, right? Everybody was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> your principal came to our house and brought us breakfast um sat with me sat with me in my home and ate mm -hmm. and then was like I got you let's go now for liability reasons there are things that we can't do today and what he did but he showed up and he listened and spent so much time away from the building for one kid. And I don't know that he did that with other kids. I, I've heard other stories that other people did not feel as supported when we were in school by him. And I get that, right? 
Um, but I can't discount what was done for me and how that changed the trajectory of my life in school for me. And so I think one of the biggest things that we can do as educators is to listen, to listen to families, to understand why parents aren't coming to parent-teacher conferences, not just berate them for not being there, um, to reevaluate and reassess things like parent-teacher conferences. Is this, is this really an investment in their time? What is the return of investment for this? Who is getting what from this, right? Um, how can I do this differently? Um, so I think that's a that's an action that can be done. Um, our district historically in Columbus has done these like town hall things. I'm, we're making this big decision and now we want to hear from you. Bruh, you already said you were making a decision. How you going to hear from me later? Bring me into the fold when the thought arises and you know you have something going on. I had... Um, conversations with district leaders last year or in the spring, I think in school years. Um, but in May, when uh, the Columbus Education Justice Coalition took action, rapid action against the searches that were happening in our schools because of an incident at one school that led to searches happening at every single high school. And one of the conversations that we had was, listen, you, you're telling me you didn't know what else to do. Okay, that's fair. But here's what happened. The incident happened at this high school on a Friday and the um, action that you determined was necessary wasn't announced until Sunday night. Mm -hmm. so you had a whole weekend, friend, to, um, to say something. <laughs> to eat a word. You 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 lead a whole school district. You could have called a press conference. If you call a press conference, all the media outlets are going to come. And the press conference could have simply been, I don't know what to do. We have done everything that we know to do. This is decision the decision that we're thinking about taking. It may not be the best, but what do we do? And that would have opened up dialogue, right? It would have given the community an understanding as to why you are making what seemed like a knee-jerk reaction mm -hmm. response, right? A reaction versus a response because a reaction happens automatically with no thought, but a response does have thought and consideration, right? Um, you reacted and now we're reacting, we could have all responded together. Yes. And if you had just been open and honest about your reaction, even if I don't like it, I would have understood it. And we could have gone from there. And what happened was you reacted and so we reacted and now we in a fight and it could have been collaborative. Um, and so that's another action that can, can happen in these educational institutions is transparency and honesty. Be honest, be honest. Say when you've messed up. Accountability, Say, accountability is key. Right, you know what? I messed up, <laughs> my bad. Also, here is what I am going to do to correct it. Mm-hmm. I understand that you may or may not trust me after this, but I am still going to work to be better 
and to do what is best with your input, right? And then the dialogue, the dialogue. Um, and sometimes as adults, we skip steps and the steps in that that we skip usually are the actions of accountability, mm -hmm. right? which mm -hmm. is that forthright, I am apologizing for this thing that I did to cause this harm to you, period, point blank. Don't mm -hmm. be like, I need to, that wasn't my intention. It don't matter what your intention, it matters that that happened. So just say, I'm sorry that I did this to you. Then these are the things that I'm thinking I can do to right this wrong, or at least to start from here going forward. Is this okay with you? Or are there other things that I could be doing? And then how can we do this together? And then where can I meet you to do this, right? And I don't mean like coffee shop versus parking lot. I mean, um, if coming to a school building is not conducive to your, your life, then what are other modes of communication, right? And then if you are in crisis and I recognize that and you don't know the answers to these, then my job as a leader is to find all of the different avenues to meet you where you are. Mm -hmm. And if there are so many other outside things that are prohibiting that, then I have other work to do. Oh, okay. It don't matter <laughs> what the mode of communication is. You're about to get evicted um, or you're about to lose your home that has mm -hmm. been your family for generations now because of gentrification and you're about to be displaced. You ain't got the time to tell me what you need because you need too much. I need to take my behind to the people who are doing this to you and tell them that they are doing this to you and demand some change, right? So then there's that, there's that advocacy and activism part. And I think it's the, I think it is easier to be an advocate than it is to be an activist because an advocate will tell all of the wrongs and tell what some solutions might be, but an activist got their hands completely it we getting all this out the mud right mm -hmm. like i am i'm saying the thing and i'm writing some wrongs actively like i am i am putting motion to it um and not enough of our leaders are in activist roles right leaders with <laughs> quotations right um, and, and too many people are deemed as leaders just because of a role that they have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, roles don't mean anything to me. Titles don't mean anything to me. I said this when I was in the classroom, I say it now, um, the school district paid me a salary that allowed me to pay my bills, but I did not work for the school district. I worked for these babies. Yeah. Yeah. I still work for these babies. Now you might give me this title and you might give me this salary, this wage and these benefits. And I am grateful, but I don't work for you. I work for my people. I work for these kids. And if I am not doing the best for the people that I actually work for in this role, then I have two choices. I either change my why or I change my wear. And that's why I've been in multiple positions because I've needed to change my wear because I'm about to change my why. I love it. 
So my mama taught me that. Shout out to Benita Joe. <laughs> so and and bringing it back a little bit too, though, and thinking about the things that I, I see, I should say, some parallel tracks when we talk about the things that school districts can do to create equitable education spaces, right? Mm-hmm. And we know that a, that communities around these schools play a role in that as well. We know a lot of times they look to us as community members when it's time for a levy, right? That's a thing. The money is a part of that. Um, I'm a person who opened my tax bill one day because I used to pay it through an escrow account. And I had to start paying it myself. And I remember opening my tax bill one day and I'm pretty sure I texted you and said, what is this? <laughs> this is a lot of money. I have no idea. And I, I remember thinking that day and I still haven't quite disclosure settled on what it means, but I was like, I need to be more involved because there is no other space in my life where I'm spending this kind of money and I don't, I don't have a front row seat of what's happening, right? So we know that the parallel tracks though, I'll say is that there is accountability and that's on all sides. The people that are providing the education to our children, the people that are living in the community around these schools, whether it's making sure the sidewalk is, is shoveled or making sure that when you pay your tax bill is on time, I mean, whatever it is, somebody has a thing that they can do, right? The other thing is, so everybody has accountability. Everybody has responsibility, right? Everybody also has to be willing to deal in the spaces of transparency mm-hmm. because I, I have had very frank conversations with you. I don't always feel like I know what's going on. And it's yeah. not that I don't have lack of, I don't, it's not that I don't have access to information, but sometimes I'm like, again, this is the only space where I'm giving somebody this much money and I don't know actually what's what they're doing with it, Right. Mm-hmm. And there's an opportunity, I think, for them to say, these are the things that we're doing. We see it from other places all the time. When you donate $3, we fed three people, you know, these kinds of things. So if somebody was to say, hey, your tax bill is this much, and you're probably wondering what is happening in our school district. Well, did you know that we just bought new textbooks for Miss So-and-So's classroom? Did you know I mean? Those are the kinds of things that I feel like if I heard that, I would feel differently, right? Um, So there's accountability, there's responsibility. There's transparency, right? And that listening, that listening piece is so necessary. Mm-hmm. Whether it's we're listening to the kids to figure out what they're dealing with, or we're listening to the families to understand where we can better connect them to make sure that the kids are learning, right? Whether mm-hmm. we're listening to the community members, because some people in the community are saying, I, I I have something to say. No, I don't have a kid in the school district. I don't have a kid at all. But I know that there's something I can lend to help with this. I, I watch it. If you just listen to what I'm saying, right? Um, and I think there's ego that's sometimes involved in that because mm-hmm. people don't want to listen because like, well, I know best. Like you said, I've been educated in this space and this and, and thus. And so I know all these things. It's like, yeah, but you still have the opportunity to hear from other people. And truly listen and pick up some other things. Yeah. So that being said, <laughs> I want to, <laughs> I know we're, we're getting close to our time together, but I want to, I want to really quickly have the listeners understand what are some practical things that they can do as community members, whether they have kids in a school or not, whether they are just the fun auntie who likes to, you know, buy kids candy and things that they're not supposed to have. I'm not telling on myself, but what, what can community members do? to be helpful in the process of educating our kids? I think um, one of the first things is just recognizing that 
um, we share space together, right? I like to think of community as less of a noun and more of a verb. It is a thing that we do, which is why sometimes I alternate between community or community member and neighbor because neighbor is more intimate. Neighbor means that um, this is the person that sees me come and go. Uh, even if we don't have a friendship, they're looking at my home because they know what happens to my home affects their home. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they ain't going to let my place get robbed because they don't want their place to get robbed, right? If we are neighbors of schools, then regardless of whether we have children there or we work in there or we got an auntie or a nae or a titi to drive a bus for them, uh, we are on the lookout for them. We are accountable. We are making sure that they are the best because when they are the best, then we are the best, right? Um, when they when they lawn is cut, <laughs> then I'm on the good too, right? And when my lawn is cut, it makes their lawn look good, right? I think that is something that people can relate to. And um, we should be neighbors to our schools, um, to our educators, to to our staff members, to our, our students. We should be looking out for one another. And so if that means like I'm picking up trash around the school in my neighborhood, it could be as simple as that. I'm shoveling the sidewalks because I know that these kids um, catch the bus right here. Mm-hmm. And they don't need to be in my lawn, but they also don't need to be on ice um, doing that. It could be as simple as that. Um, these lights ain't working in my neighborhood and these kids got to walk in the dark. I need to be calling the city to and, and bugging them to get these lights on. It may not affect me. I'm good, but it's affecting these kids in my neighborhood, my neighbors. Um, calling the school to see how you can get active in that particular school in your neighborhood um showing up at board meetings paying attention to what's going on knowing the schedules those kinds of things there are lots of different ways to engage and it doesn't always have to be a fight and a when it is a fight then you know i'm saying be ready to knuck and buck too (laughs) love it but if, also people know nothing about me though they know that i'm gonna have guests who reference things from the 90s and some of you that resonated with you will lean into that knocking and bucking listen, I'm, a, I'm just you know what i'm saying i got i'm being my whole self here I but i think that there are just different roles that we play but i think the first thing is recognizing that you have an impactful role to play and not everyone knows that because if you don't have your own kids in that district then then what is my role, right? You're a neighbor. Let's be neighborly. What would a neighbor do? Um, I think that that is just, that's something. And then also identifying, again, getting to the root cause of things like the levees, right? (laughs) Why do schools need levees? It's not just a school district. And in the state of Ohio, it is how school districts are funded. Um, And if you don't like it, finding out where it came from and why it affects our schools the way it does and what can be changed and then get into in the people's faces who really make those decisions, right? Because this week, we're going through a season of a local levy here in Columbus. Um, 
there are a lot of changes that have come from the state that have impacted this levy campaign. And a lot of people don't know, right? And so it's like, who who is the big bad wolf, <laughs> right? Like these might be people that I don't like and I don't trust, but are they the real enemy of the system or is it somebody else? Because systems are going to system. Mm-hmm. Institutions going to do what they were built to do. And the public education system was never built for what we dream and hope for it. It wasn't built so that um, kids become lifelong learners and thinking adults. No, it was an originally built to push out workers, to push out folks who knew how to follow rules and directions and could work in production factories and things like that, right? Which is why for a long time, like, you know, school only went up to a certain, you only had to do a certain grade level. Um, And then anyone beyond that were deemed academics. And that was a social status and things like that. So the system is doing what the system was built to do, recognizing that and who the real players are in the system is important as well. Because when we have to make these crucial decisions that affect us, like taxes, um, yeah, you can be mad at the school district if they are mishandling funds and you don't trust them. Um, But why do they need to ask for a levy? Is that a school district thing or is that a state thing? Why is funding the way that it is? Who set it up that way? Why can't it be changed? Oh, okay. So it's not just my school board, right? But this is a state thing. And and how do I affect change at that level? Um, And where do I start locally, right? And who... What am I doing when I make this decision, right? Um, I'm a person that has always voted for a school levy. Uh, I've not always been happy about it, <laughs> but I've done it because I also know what happens when levies don't pass. Mm. Um, and I remember the last school levy in Columbus that did not pass. And I remember um, rationing out paper. Mm and um, having to not just come out of my own pocket for things, because we always do that as teachers. And I'm not saying that that's a best practice. It's a common practice. But some of the things that I had started coming out of my pockets for was a little bit ridiculous. Mm. Um, And I got to the point where I would like save up and save up and buy these like big classroom packs of crayons and markers because I didn't want to have to ask parents to send crayons and markers because there were other things that they were having to pay for now or the cost because inflation, right? And I want you to be able to afford this field trip. And so if that means that I come out of my pocket for supplies so that you can save your supply money for a field trip or for shoes or for lunch, because no matter what we offer in the school lunch, because of your kids' exceptionalities, they can't have it. Mm then I want you to dedicate those funds to that. Um, Finding ways of holding our district leaders accountable, but not just saying it, like what's the do behind it? And what does accountability look like for you? And what does success look like for you? Um, We need 
the current school levy for our district right now. And I'm not trying to make this a commercial or a campaign, but I'm gonna be honest. Mm -hmm. um, our school's at a place where we have a lot of wants. You have other school districts, suburban districts who are getting, who have school levies on the ballot. And those, um, let me back that up. We have a lot of needs and you have other school districts who are funding wants. My hope is to get us to a place where we can want because it's hard to dream when you need, right? And we need things so that we can get to the wants. I heard uh, someone from a suburban Central Ohio school district say that if this levy doesn't pass, then we won't be able to have field trips. Uh, field trips are an academic need, but they are also a want. Mm -hmm. And our school district is like, literally helping to keep buildings standing and to um, keep positions that our kids need. People said our kids need more social emotional support because the stresses of the world are this, this, that, and the other, and they're not functioning and regulating themselves well. Um, and so through other funding, um, emergency funding, right, because of the pandemic, uh, our district was able to bring on 90 school counselors which makes a huge difference in a school district with over a hundred school buildings. Yeah. First of all, if you think about math, when math be mathing, right? Over a hundred school districts, I mean, over a hundred school buildings, but we had to bring on 90 counselors. So how many counselors were there? Was there not enough for one for each building? Absolutely, there was not. It hadn't been for a good long time, right? right. The levy doesn't pass we lose those 90 counselors because not because they want to, because there are other places where the funds are going to have to be allocated and it's not going to be able to fund the counselors because can I have 90 counselors in built crumbling buildings? I'm going to need to keep the buildings up, right? right? Like I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul here. Um, school levies are supposed to be on ballots every four years. Some schools do that every single four years, every four years, right? And other school districts have chosen to, nope, we're going to wait until this bank account get low, low, low. <laughs> and then we're going to ask. We're going to try to use every single dollar and make it last and then ask. Um, right now is a time where everybody is struggling. Yeah. Um, and so if we're struggling individually, and home ownership and property supports schools, then of course the schools would be struggling if property owners are struggling. So what is the answer, right? Like it's a hard decision to make. I am choosing to vote for the levy, but I know that that might be detrimental to some other folks. Yeah. Um, but what what about the kids though? <laughs> like what do they, how do, how do I get them what they need and this is a way, the way the system is built right now, this is one of the main ways to do that. And then my job as an organizer is to take these needs and decide what are some next plans of action that we can do? Because how can we change the system so that our school district and other school districts are not dependent on school levies and it can look different, but that's a long-term goal. And it takes a lot of time to be able to do that short-term we need money now. Right. Yeah. So 
man it, it, <laughs> so and i'm so I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna shift us hard to the left yeah 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 that's what i do right but you talked about you talked about dreams right you talked about dealing with the needs to get to the wants so that we can dream be it be it us as individuals be it the kids as they're trying to figure out who they are going to be as they come through life so i'm gonna i'm going to end us in a very interesting place welcome to the chaos you know me <laughs> i love it and this is probably not as easy of a question as it seems on its face but mm -hmm. what is your wildest dream <laughs> um hmm you know I said this jokingly a long, long time ago, but I think that this is honestly a wildest dream of mine to be able to work myself out of a job, meaning that um, as a special educator, I would love to get to a place where educating the whole child and all of the exceptionalities is a common and best practice. And so we're all doing it. So there yeah. would be no need for a Miss Isetta in just this type of space because, or 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 a special education teacher, because we're all special education teachers because everybody has different needs and we found the best ways to be able to do it without labels, right? Um, that there's no need for organizers because we've done the work and changed the systems and shifted the power so now democracy looks like what it actually should look like and decision making is shared amongst all classes socially economically academically um and and it becomes a common and best practice to take care of your neighbor the way that they need to be taken care of. Mm. Um, that there are things set in place so that um, we ain't got to do a whole lot of fighting and there ain't no man no more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we dismantled it, right? That That's my wildest dream, I guess, to dismantle the patriarchy. Um, but that that is it. Like I, I mean, I love being me and I love being Miss Isetta and I love the work that I do. Um, it is also exhausting and not just to me personally, but the, to those of us who are in crisis, um, and I don't want my people to be in crisis anymore. I don't want there to be, um, this kind of trauma. There will all, trauma will always exist, right? Car accidents, things like that. But I just, I would love to be able to work myself out of a job. Here we are. 60 some years past the civil rights movement. Um, we can count all the decades of different movements and things like that. And we're essentially still fighting the same fight. Um, my wildest dream is that that is not a fight anymore and that we are constantly working towards once now because all needs are always met. So I don't know, somebody gonna be like, your guest was a socialist. <laughs> But here's the thing: everybody has a face in this world, and we all learn from each other. So hey, that's just that's where I'm at. Like that's my wildest dream yeah. that 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 folks are accepted for who they are. They're celebrated. Um, their needs are met wholly. Um, we are taking care of each other, and roles like this don't need to exist because community in action exists. So I love that. 
I'm not surprised. I love it. So before we get out of here, I do want, and I will post in the show notes, but will you just state with your voice um, for our listeners where they can follow you on social media to learn more about the work that you do? Absolutely. To learn about the work, uh, you can follow on Instagram, Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, um, and TikTok, Justice. Um, that is the Columbus Education Justice Coalition. Uh, if you want to know about some of my personal work, even outside of that, you can follow me. Um, usually this stuff is kind of private, but you can hit me up and be like, I heard you on Jossie's show, uh, <laughs> at Isaiah Nicole. And, um, and that's again on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and I got a little TikToky up there I don't do nothing with um and then also Joveria Education Consulting is my consulting business and I am primarily working on educating um girls of color and films of color um to to know more about education equity and especially policy change in their roles in that as young people. So um, yeah, that's, and I, I call the the curriculum that I am developing is the Black Girls Freedom Journey. Um, and that is what it is. It's talking about liberation through education and focusing on policy so that our kids understand the rules that um, oppress them and where they came from and how, what they can do to change them. So yeah, so that's me in all the places. <laughs> You're just doing a few things here and there. So, you know, a couple things. (laughs) Having listened clearly and knowing what you do on a regular basis, I'm grateful for this time that you chose to spend with me to help me and the learners. I am. I said learners. That was a Freudian slip, but it was real. To help me and the listeners who are learners learn more about, you know, what we can do to help make education spaces better and how we can just be better neighbors. So I am you. honored to be here. No, thank you. Um, I am honored to to be seen in the way that you see me and saw fit to be invited into spaces like this because I don't take that lightly. So, um, Sawabona, I see you, sis. Sawabona, <laughs> Sawabona. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And now it's time for one last thing. I have two quotes today from women who were educators who were born approximately 60 years apart and lived and taught in different areas of the United States. The thing they have in common is that they both were so committed to the education of children and young people that they started schools using their own resources. The first quote comes from Mary McLeod Bethune. You might be familiar with Bethune's work as the founder of Bethune-Cookman College in Florida. Mary McLeod Bethune was the child of emancipated people and being the youngest of her parents' kids, was able to go away to boarding school, college, 
and then of course eventually start a college um, after she had herself started a boarding school. And so Mary McLeod Bethune said, we have a powerful potential in our youth and we must have the courage to change old ideas and practices so that we may direct their power toward good ends. The other quote comes from Marva Collins, who was an educator that opened a private school on the west side of Chicago. Marva Collins dipped into her retirement fund early and with $5,000 started a school that will become world-renowned. And the reason that Collins started this school is because she worked with children who were labeled in their public school system as having learning disabilities. But what she realized is that people just had not tapped in to the way that these particular children learned and retained information. And so in a book that she wrote, Collins said the following, I'm a teacher. A teacher is someone who leads. There is no magic here. I do not walk on water. I do not part the sea. I just love children. 